Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Today's episode is a roundtable discussion about AI safety with Eliezer Yudkowsky, Gary Marcus, and Scott Aronson. Eliezer Yudkowsky is a prominent AI researcher and writer known for co-founding the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, where he spearheaded research on AI safety. He's also widely recognized for his influential writings on the topic of rationality. Scott Aronson is a theoretical computer scientist and author celebrated for his pioneering work in the field of quantum computation. He's also the chair of CompSci at U of T Austin, but is currently taking a leave of absence to work at OpenAI. Gary Marcus is a cognitive scientist, author, and entrepreneur known for his work at the intersection of psychology, linguistics, and AI. He's also authored several books, including Kluge and Rebooting AI, Building AI We Can Trust. This episode is all about AI safety. We talk about the alignment problem. We talk about the possibility of human extinction due to AI. We talk about what intelligence actually is. We talk about the notion of a singularity or an AI takeoff event and much more. It was really great to get these three guys in the same virtual room. And I think you'll find that this conversation brings something a bit fresh to a topic that has admittedly been beaten to death on certain corners of the internet. So without further ado, Eliezer Yudkowsky, Gary Marcus, and Scott Aronson. Okay, Eliezer Yudkowsky, Scott Aronson, Gary Marcus, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thanks Thank you. Us. Thanks for having us. So the topic of today's conversation is AI safety, and this is something that's been in the news lately. We've, we've seen uh, you know, experts and CEOs signing letters recommending uh, public policy surrounding regulation. Uh, we, we continue to have the debate between uh, people that really fear uh, AI is going to end the world and potentially kill all of humanity and the the people who fear that those fears uh, who feel that those fears are overblown uh, and and so this is going to be sort of a roundtable conversation about that and you three are really three of the best people in the world to to talk about it with so thank you all for doing this um, let's let's just start out with you Eliezer because you've been one of the uh, the the most uh, really influential voices getting people to take seriously the possibility that AI will kill us all you know. Why is AI going to destroy us? Chat GPT seems pretty nice. I use it every day. What's uh, what's the big fear here? Make the case. Well, Chat GPT seems quite unlikely to kill everyone in its present state. AI capabilities keep on advancing and advancing. The question is not can can GPT can a Chat GPT kill us? The answer is probably no. So as long as that's true, as long as it hasn't killed us yet, the you know they're just going to the engineers are just going to keep pushing the capabilities. There is no obvious blocking point. We don't understand. The things that we build, the AIs are grown more than built, you might say. They end up as giant inscrutable matrices of floating point numbers that nobody can decode. It's probably going to end up technically difficult to make them want particular things and not others. And people are just charging straight ahead. So at this rate, we end up with something that is smarter than us, smarter than humanity, that we don't understand, whose preferences we could not shape. 
And by default, if that happens, if you have something around that is like much smarter than you and does not care about you one way or the other, you probably end up dead at the end of that. It the way it gets the most of whatever strange, inscrutable things that it wants are worlds in which there are not humans taking up space, using up resources, building other AIs to compete with it, or just a world in which you built enough power plants that the surface of the earth got hot enough the humans didn't survive. Uh, Gary, what do you have to say about that? There are parts that I agree with and parts that I don't. So I agree that we are likely to wind up with AIs that are smarter than us. I don't think we're particularly close now, but you know, in 10 years or 50 years or 100 years at some point, could be a thousand years, but it will happen. I think there's a lot of anthropomorphization there about machines wanting things. Of course, they have objective functions and we can talk about that. I think it's a presumption to say that the default is that they're going to want something that leads to our demise um, and that they're going to be effective at that and be able to literally kill us all. I think if you look at the history of AI, at least so far, they don't really have wants beyond what we program them to do. There is an alignment problem. I think that that's real in the sense of like people will program the system to do X and they do X prime. That's kind of like X, but not exactly. And so I think there's really things to worry about. I think there's a real research program here that is under-researched, um, which is my, the way I would put it is we want to understand how to make machines that have values. You know, Asimov's laws are way too simple, but they're kind of starting point for conversation. Um, we want to program machines that don't hu harm humans. They can calculate the consequences of their actions. <clears throat> right now we have technology like GPT-4 that has no idea what the consequences of its actions are. It doesn't really anticipate things. And there's a separate thing that Eliezer didn't emphasize emphasize, which is it's not just how smart the machines are, but how much power we give them, how much we empower them to do things like access the internet or manipulate people or, you know, uh, load, write source code, access files and stuff like that. And right now, AutoGPT can do all of those things. And that's actually pretty disconcerting to me. To me, that doesn't all add up to any kind of extinction risk anytime soon, but catastrophic risk where things go pretty wrong because we wanted these systems to do X and we didn't really specify it well. They don't really understand our intentions. I think there are risks like that. I don't see it as a default that we wind up with extinction. I think it's pretty hard to actually terminate the entire human species. You're going to have people in Antarctica that are going to be out of harm's way or whatever, or you're going to have some people who you know respond differently to any path etc. So like extinction is a pretty extreme outcome that I don't think is particularly likely, but the possibility that these machines will cause mayhem because we don't know how to enforce that they do what we want them to do. I think that's a real thing to worry about and it's certainly worth doing research on. Scott, how do you view this? Yeah, so I'm sure that you can get the three of us arguing about something, but I think you're going to get agreement from all three of us that AI safety is important and that, you know, catastrophic outcomes, uh, whether or not that, you know, means literal human extinction uh, are, are, are possible. I think uh, it's become apparent over the last few years that, you know, th this century uh, is going to be, uh, uh, you know, largely defined by uh, our our interaction with with AI that uh, you know AI is going to be transformative for human civilization and um, 
you know, I would, you know, I am, I'm confident of that much. And, you know, if you ask me almost anything beyond that about how is it going to transform civilization? Will it be good? Will it be bad? What will the AI want? Uh, you know, I am pretty agnostic uh, just because uh, if you would ask me 20 years ago to try to forecast where we are now, you know, I would have uh, gotten a lot wrong. You know, I think, you know, my uh, only defense is uh, I, I think that uh, uh, all of us here and you know almost everyone in the world uh, would have gotten a lot wrong uh, about where we are now and so if i try to uh, envision where we are in you know, in 2043, uh, or, you know, uh, does the AI uh, 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 want to uh, replace humanity with something better? You know, does it want to keep us around as pets? Uh, does it, uh, uh, you know, want to just uh, 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 continue, you know, helping us out? Uh, you know, like uh, just a super, you know, a souped up version of chat GPT. Um, you know, I think, you know, all, all of those scenarios uh, merit consideration. Um, but I, I think that uh, what has happened in the last few years uh, that's really exciting is that, you know, AI safety has become an empirical subject, right? There are these very powerful AIs that are now being deployed and we can actually learn something. Uh, we can, you know, work on, um, you know, mitigating the nearer term harms, you know, not because, you know, the, the you know, existential risk doesn't exist or, or is, 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 is absurd or is science fiction or anything like that, but just because the nearer term harms are the ones that we can see right in front of us and where we can actually get feedback from the external world about how we're doing. You know, we can learn something. And hopefully some of the knowledge that we gain uh, will be useful in uh, addressing the longer term risks that I think Eliezer is very rightly worried about. So there's seems to me there's alignment and then there's alignment, right? So there's alignment in the sense that we haven't even fully aligned smartphone technology with our interests, right? Like there's some ways in which smartphones and social media have led to probably deleterious mental health outcomes, especially for, especially for teenage girls, for example. Uh, so the, the, there are those kinds of mundane senses of alignment where it's like, is this technology doing uh, more good than harm in the normal everyday public policy sense? And then there's the capital A alignment of, are we creating a creature that is going to view us like ants and have no problem extinguishing us uh, extinguishing us and um whether intentional or not so it seems to me all of you agree that you know the the first sense of alignment is at the very least something to worry about now and something to deal with but i'm i'm curious to what extent you think the really capital a sense of alignment uh is a real problem because it can sound very much like science fiction to people. So maybe let's start with um, Eliezer. I mean, from my perspective, I would say that if if we had a solid guarantee that AI was going to do no more harm than social media, we ought to plow ahead and get the, all the gains. It's not enough harm to back like this, this amount of harm that social media has done to humanity. Well, while very significant in my view, I think it's done like a lot of damage to our sanity, but that's just like not a large enough harm to justify either foregoing the gains that you could get from AI if that was going to be the worst downside, or um, to justify the kind of drastic measures you'd need to stop plowing ahead on AI. I think that the capital A alignment is beyond this generation. You know, I've I've started the field. I've I've watched it, watched over it for two decades. 
I, I feel like in some ways the, the modern generation plowing in with their eyes on the short term stuff is like losing track of the larger problems because they can't solve the larger problems and they can't solve the, the little problems. But we're, we're just like plowing straight into the big problems and we're going to go plow right into the big problems with a bunch of little solutions that aren't going to scale. I, I think it's kill. I think it's lethal. I, I think it's at the scale where you just back off and, and don't do this. By back off and don't do this, what do you mean? I mean, ha- have a international treaty about where the chips capable of doing AI training go and have them all going into licensed, monitored data centers and not have the training runs for AIs more powerful than GPT-4, possibly even lowering that threshold over time as algorithms improve and it gets power possible to train more powerful AIs using less compute. So you're picturing a kind of international agreement to just stop? International moratorium. And if North Korea steals the GPU shipment, then you've got to be ready to destroy their data center that they build by conventional means. And if you don't have that willingness in advance, then countries may refuse to sign up for the agreement being like, why aren't we just like ceding the advantage to someone else then? It, it actually has to be a worldwide shutdown because the scale of harm from a superintelligence, it's not that if you have 10 times as many superintelligences, you've got 10 times as much harm. It's not that a superintelligence only wrecks the country that built the superintelligence. Any superintelligence everywhere is anyone's last problem. So Gary and Scott, if either of you want to jump in there, I mean, is there is AI safety a matter of forestalling the end of the world and all of these smaller issues and, and pass towards safety that Scott, you mentioned are just, you know, you know, throwing, I don't know what the analogy and what the analogy is, but, um, pointless essentially. I mean, what do you guys make of this? I mean, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a step, right? I mean, most of my, uh, you know, uh, the way I think about this comes from, you know, uh, uh, 25 years of, you know, doing computer science research, including uh, quantum computing and, um, you know, computational complexity, things like that, where we have these gigantic, you know, aspirational problems that we we don't know how to solve. uh, And yet, you know, uh, year after year, uh, we do make progress. We pick off little sub problems. And if we can't solve those, then we find sub problems of those. And, you know, we keep repeating until we find something that we can solve. And, you know, this is this is, I think, for centuries, the way that science has made progress. Now, you know, it is possible that, you know, this time, you know, we just don't have enough time for that to work. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that is what what Eliezer is, is fearful of. Right. That we just don't have enough time for the order ordinary scientific process uh, to to work before AI becomes too powerful, uh, you know, in which case, you know, you start talking about things like a, a global moratorium, you know, uh, uh, enforced with uh, the uh, threat of war. Uh, you know, I am not ready to go there. Like I could imagine circumstances where where maybe I, I say, you know, gosh, this is this looks like such an imminent threat that, uh, you know, that that, uh, that we have to. But, you know, I, I'm very I I tend to be very, very worried in general about uh, causing a catastrophe in the course of trying to prevent a catastrophe. And I think, you know, when, when you know, you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, threatening airstrikes against data centers or things like that, then that, that that's an obvious worry. I'm sort of somewhere in between, I guess. I, I don't think that there's, so I'm somewhat in between here. I'm with Scott that we are not at the point where we should be bombing data centers. I don't think we're close to that. I'm much less 
don't know what the right word is to, to use here. I don't think we're anywhere near as close to AGI as I think Eliezer sometimes sounds like. Like, I don't think GPT-5 is any, anything like AGI, and I'm not particularly concerned about who gets it first and, and so forth. On the other hand, I think that we're in a sort of dress rehearsal mode. You know, nobody expected GPT-4, really chat GPT, to percolate as fast as it did. And it's a reminder <clears throat> that there's a social side to all of this. You know, how software gets distributed matters. And there's a corporate side. And it, it was a kind of galvanizing moment for me when Microsoft didn't pull Sydney, even though Sydney did some awfully strange things. I thought they would take it for a while. And it's a reminder that they can make whatever decisions they want. And so you kind of multiply that by Eliezer's concerns about what do we do? <coughs> and at what point, what, what would be enough to um, cause problems? And it is a reminder, I think, that we need, for example, to start roughing out these international treaties now, because there could become a moment where there is a problem. I don't think the problem that Eliezer sees is here now, but maybe it will be. And maybe when it does come, we will have so many people pursuing commercial self-interest and so little infrastructure in place, we won't be able to do anything. So I think it really is important to think now, if we reach such a point, what are we going to do? What do we need to build in place before we get to that point? So we've been talking about this concept of artificial general intelligence. And I think it's worth asking whether that is a, a useful, coherent concept. So for example, if I, if I were to think by analogy to athleticism and think of the moment when we build a machine that has, say, artificial general athleticism, meaning it's, you know, better than LeBron James at basketball, but also better at, the, at curling than the world's best curling player and also better at soccer and also better at archery and so forth, um, it would seem to me that there's something a bit strange as framing it as having reached a point on a on a single continuum. It seems to me you would sort of have to build each capability, each sport individually, and then somehow figure how to pack package them all into one robot without each skill set detracting from the other. Is is that a disanalogy? Is there is there do you do you all picture this? intelligence as sort of one dimension, one knob that is going to get turned up um, along a single axis, axis? Or do you think that way of talking about it is misleading in, in the same way that I kind of just sketched out? I would absolutely not accept that. I, I like to say that intelligence is not a one dimensional variable. You know, th there's many different aspects to intelligence. And you know, there's not, I think, going to be a magical moment when we reach the singularity or something like that. Um, I would say that the core of artificial general intelligence is the ability to flexibly deal with new problems that you haven't seen before. And current systems can do that a little bit, but not very well. My typical example of this now is <clears throat> GPT-4 is exposed to the game of chess, sees lots of games of chess, it sees the rules of chess, but it never actually figures out the rules of chess and makes illegal moves and so forth. So it's in no way a general intelligence that can just pick up new things. And of course, we have things like AlphaGo that can play a certain set of games, or AlphaZero really, um, but we don't have anything that has the generality of human intelligence. But, you know, human intelligence is just one example of general intelligence. You could argue that chimpanzees or crows have another variety of general intelligence. Um, I would say the current machines don't really have it, um, but they will eventually. I mean, I think a priori, you know, it could have been that, uh, 
you know, you would have ma uh, math ability, you would have verbal ability, uh, you'd have, uh, uh, you know, ability to understand humor, and they'd all be just completely unrelated to each other, right? That is possible. And, and in fact, uh, you know, already with GPT, you can say that, you know, in some ways, it already is a super intelligence, you know, it knows vastly more, can converse on a vastly greater range of subjects than any human can. Uh, and in other ways, uh, it seems to fall short of, uh, of, of, of what humans know or, or, or can do. Uh, but, you know, you, you all, but you also see this sort of generality just, just empirically. So, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, GPT was sort of, uh, trained on, you know, all the text on the internet, uh, uh, or, you know, let's say, let's say most of the text on the, on the open internet. So, so it was just one method, you know, it was not, uh, explicitly designed to write code, and yet it can write code. And, you know, at the same time as that ability emerged, uh, you also saw, you know, the ability to solve uh, word problems, like, you know, high school level math. Uh, you saw, you know, the ability to write poetry, right? You know, this all came out of the same system uh, without any of it, you know, being explicitly optimized for. And so... I feel like I need to interject one important thing, which is it can do all these things, but none of them all that reliably. Okay. Uh, 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 nevertheless, I mean, compared to, you know, what, let's say what my expectations would have been, if you'd asked me 10 or 20 years ago, I think that the level of generality is pretty remarkable. And, uh, you know, and, and it does lend support to the idea that, that, that there is some sort of general quality of understanding there where, where you could say, for example, that GPT-4 has more of it than GPT-3, which in turn has more than GPT-2. And I would say that um, it, it does seem to me like it's presently pretty unambiguous that GPT-4 is in some sense dumber than an adult or even teenage human. That's not obvious to me. Why would you say that? I think that we will eventually get... It's not obvious to you? I mean, to take the example I just gave you a minute ago, it, it never learns to play chess, even with a huge amount of data. So th there, it, it will play a little bit of chess. It will memorize the openings and, and be okay for the first 15 moves, but it gets far enough away from what it's trained on and it falls apart. This is characteristic um, of these systems. It's not really characteristic in the same way um, of adults or, or even teenage humans. Um, almost anything that it does, it does unreliably. And give another example, you can ask a human to write a biography of someone and don't make stuff up. And you really can't ask GPT to do that. Yeah, like it's a bit difficult because you could always be cherry picking something that humans aren't usually good at. But to me, it does seem like there's this broad range of problems that don't seem especially to play to humans' strong points or machine weak points where GPT-4 will... You know, like do no better than a seven-year-old on yeah, those problems. Yeah, hold on. Can I can I, so can it's I interject here? I do yet. feel like these examples are cherry-picked because if I if I just take a different, very typical example, I'm writing an op-ed for the New York Times, say, about any given subject in the world, and my choice is to have a smart fourteen-year-old next to me with anything that's in his mind already, or GPT. Like, there's no comparison. Right. So which of these sort of examples is the litmus if test you for, did for it on a topic intelligent, that was right? not If you did it on a topic 
where it couldn't rely on memorized text, you might actually change your mind on that. So I mean, the thing about writing a, a Times op-ed is most of the things that you propose to it, there's actually something that it can pastiche together from its data set. That doesn't mean that it really understands what's going on. It doesn't mean that that's a general capability. Also, as the human, you're doing all the hard parts, right? Like, obviously, a human is going to prefer if they've, if human has a math problem, they're going to rather use a calculator than another human. And similarly, with the New York Times op-ed, you're doing all the parts that are hard for GPT-4. And then you're like asking GPT-4 to just do some of the parts that are hard for you. You're always going to prefer an AI partner rather than a human partner, you know, with, with within that sort of range of like the human can do all the human stuff and you want an AI to do whatever the AI is good at at the moment. An analogy that's maybe a little bit helpful here is driverless cars. You know, it turns out that on highways and ordinary traffic, they're probably better than people. In unusual circumstances, they're really worse than people. So, you know, Tesla not too long ago ran into a jet and a human wouldn't do that. Like slow speed being summoned across a parking lot, a human would never do that. So, you know, th there are different strengths and weaknesses. The strengths of a lot of the current kinds of technology is that they can either pastiche together or make not literal analogies, we won't go into the details, but to stored examples. And they tend to be poor when you get to outlier cases. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and that's persistent across most of the technologies um, that we use right now. And so if you stick to stuff in which there's a lot of data, you'll be happy with the results you get from these systems. You move far enough away, not so much. And what we're going to see over time is that the length of the debate about whether or not it's still dumber than you gets longer and longer and longer. And then, you know, if things are allowed to just keep running and nobody dies, then, you know, at some point it switches over to a very long debate about is it smarter than you, which then gets shorter and shorter and shorter and eventually reaches a point where, you know, it's pretty unambiguous if you're paying attention. Now, I suspect that this process gets interrupted by everybody dying. Um, in particular, there's the question of the point at which it becomes better than you, better than humanity at building the next edition of the AI system and how fast do things snowball once you get to that point. Possibly you do not have time for further public uh, debates or, or, or even a two-hour Twitter space, depending on how that goes. I mean, some of the limitations of GPT uh, are very, are completely understandable, you know, just from from a little knowledge of how it works, right? Like it does not have an internal memory, you know, uh, per se, you know, uh, other than what appears uh, on the screen in front of you, right? So this is why it's turned out to be so effective to like explicitly tell it, like let's think step by step when it's solving a math problem, for example, right? You have to tell it to show all of its work because it doesn't have, you know, an, an internal memory uh, with which to, to do that. Likewise, you know, when people complain about it, you know, hallucinating uh, references that don't exist. Well, the truth is, you know, when someone asks me for a, for a citation, you know, if I'm not allowed to use Google, right, I might have a vague recollection of, you know, some of the authors and, you know, I'll probably do a very similar thing to what GPT does. I'll hallucinate, right? So, well, no, there, there's a great phrase I learned the other day, which is frequently wrong, never in doubt. <laughs> That's that's true. That's true. It, it, uh, I'm not going to make up a reference with full detail, page numbers, titles. 
um, so forth. I might say, look, I don't remember it was, you know, 2012 or something like that. Um, whereas GPT-4, what it's going to say is 2017, Aronson and Yudkowsky, New York Times, pages 13 to 17. No, it does need to get much, much better at knowing what it doesn't know. And yet, you know, already I've seen, you know, a, uh, a noticeable improvement there, you know, going from GPT-3 to GPT-4, right? For example, if you ask GPT-3, prove that there are only finitely many prime numbers, you know, it will give you a proof, even though the statement is false, you know, and, it, you know, and it will have an error, which is similar to the errors on, you know, a thousand exams that I've graded, right? Just, you know, trying to get something past you, you know, hoping that you won't notice. Hey, if you ask GPT-4, prove that there are only finitely many prime numbers, it says, no, that's a trick question. Actually, there are infinitely many primes. And here's why. Yeah. Part of the problem with doing the science here is that I think you would know better since since you work part time or whatever at OpenAI. But my sense is that a lot of the examples that get posted on Twitter, particularly by the likes of me and other critics um, or other skeptics, I should say, is the the system gets trained on those. So you know, almost everything that people write about it, I think, is in the training set. So. We, it's hard to do the science when the system's constantly being trained, especially in the RLHF um, side of things. And, and we don't actually know what's in GPT-4, so we don't even know if they're regular expressions and you know simple rules to match things. So we can't do the kind of science we used to be able to do. But th- this conversation, I, I should, this, this subtree of the conversation, I think, has no, has no natural endpoint. So if I can sort of zoom out a bit, I think there's a you know pretty solid sense in which humans are more generally intelligent than chimpanzees. As you get closer and closer to the human level, it, um, I, I would say that, that, the, that, the, that the direction here is still clear, that the comparison is still clear. We are still smarter than GPT-4. This is not going to take control of the world from us. But, you know, the, the conversations get longer. Uh, it, it gets, the, the, the definitions start to break down around the edges. Um, and, but I think it also, as you keep going, like it comes back together again. There's a point and possibly this point is like very close in the point of time to where everybody dies. So maybe we don't ever like see it in a, in a podcast, but there's a point where it's, you know, unambiguously smarter than you. And it, it, including like the spark of creativity, being able to deduce things quickly rather than with tons and tons of extra evidence, strategy, cunning, modeling people, figuring out how, how to manipulate people. So let's stipulate, Eliezer, that we're going to get to machines that can do all of that. And then the question is, what are they going to do? Is it a certainty that they will make our annihilation part of their business? Is it a possibility? Is it an unlikely possibility? I think your view is that it's a certainty. I've never really understood that part. It's, It's a certainty on the present tech is the way I would put it. Like if that happened, so so in particular, like if if that happened tomorrow, then, you know, Modulo, Cromwell's rule, never say certain. Um, like my probability is like, yes, Modulo, like the chance that my, that my model is somehow just completely mistaken. If we got 50 years to work it out and unlimited retries, I'd be a lot more, you know, that I think that'd be pretty okay. I think, I think we'd, we, you know, I, I think we'd make it. Um, the, the problem is that uh, it's, it's a lot harder to do science when your first wrong try destroys the human species and then you don't, you don't get to try again. I mean, I, I think there's something, again, that I agree with and something I'm a little bit skeptical about. So I agree that the amount of time we have matters. And I would also agree that there's no existing technology that 
solves the alignment problem that gives a moral basis to these machines. I mean, GPT-4 is fundamentally amoral. I don't think it's immoral. It's not out to get us, but it really is amoral. It can, you know, it can answer trolley problems because they're trolley problems um, in, in the data set, but that doesn't mean that it really has a moral understanding of the world. And so if we get to a very smart machine that, you know, by all the criteria that we've talked about and it's amoral, then that's a problem for us. And there's a question of whether if we can get to a more, sorry, if we can get to smart machines, whether we can build them in a way that will have some moral basis. And I think we need to make progress. Well, I mean, the first tripart I'm not willing to let pass. So I understand, I think, your argument there. Maybe you should spell it out. Um, I think that we probably get more than one shot and that it's not as dramatic and instantaneous as you think. Um, I do think one wants to think about sandboxing, one wants to think about distribution. But I mean, let's say we had one evil super genius now who is smarter than everybody else. Like, so what? You know, one super- Much smarter. Say again? Not just a little smarter. Even a lot smarter. Like most super geniuses, you know, aren't actually that effective. They're not that focused. They were focused on other things. You know, you're kind of assuming that the first- super genius AI is going to make it its business to annihilate us. And that's the part where I, I still am a bit stuck in the argument. Yeah. Um, some of this has to do with the notion that if you do a bunch of training, you start to get goal direction, even if you don't explicitly train on that. Um, that goal direction is a natural way to achieve higher capabilities. The reasons why, reason why humans want things is that wanting things is an effective way of getting things. And, and so natural selection in the process of selecting exclusively on reproductive fitness just on that one thing got us to want a bunch of things that correlated with reproductive fitness in the ancestral distribution because wanting, having intelligences that want things is a good way of getting things. That's in a, in a sense like, you know, wanting comes from the same place as intelligence itself. And you could even, you know, from a certain technical standpoint on expected utility, say that intelligence is a special, is, is a very effective way of wanting, planning, plotting paths through time that lead to particular outcomes. So, so, so part of it is that I think it, I, I do not think you get like the brooding super intelligence that wants nothing, because I don't think that wanting an intelligence can be pri internally pried apart that easily. I think that the way you get superintelligences is, is that there are things that have gotten good at organizing their own thoughts and have good taste in which thoughts to think. And, and that is where the, the high capabilities come from. Can I put a point to you, Eliezer, um, on, the, on this? And, and then that does mean that they have internal Let me just put this point to you. I, th I think it, can, let me just put the following point to you, which I think um, in my mind is similar to what Gary was saying. There's, there's often in philosophy, this notion of the continuum fallacy, which, and, and the, the, canonical example is, is like, you can't locate a single hair that you would pluck from my head where I would suddenly go from not bald to bald. Or like the example, the even more intuitive examples, like a color wheel, like there's no single uh, on a grayscale, there's no single pixel you can point to and say, well, that's where gray begins and white ends. And yet we have this conceptual distinction that feels hard and fast between gray and white and, and gray and black and so forth. When we're talking about, you know, artificial general intelligence or super intelligence, you seem to operate on a model where either it's a super intelligence capable of destroying all of us or it's not. Whereas intelligence may just be 
a continuum fallacy style spectrum where we're first going to see the shades of something that's just a bit more intelligent than us. And maybe it can kill five people at most. And then it can, and, and when that happens, you know, we, we're going to want to intervene and we're going to figure out how to intervene at that level and, and well, so on and so forth. Well, if it's stupid enough to do it, then yeah. Yeah, so... If, it, if it's stupid enough to do it, then yeah. Let me, by the identical logic, there should be nobody who steals money on a really large scale, right? Because you could just give them $5 and see if they steal that. And if they don't steal that, you know you're good to trust them with a billion. I mean, I, I think that in actuality, anyone who did steal a billion dollars probably displayed some dishonest behavior earlier in their life that was, you know, unfortunately not not acted upon uh, early enough. I'm actually not even. Uh, I mean, the, the, the analogy. Yeah, but, but hold so, on, hold on. So, the analogy out picture is like we have the first case of of fraud that's ten thousand dollars, and then we build systems to prevent it, but then they fail with a somewhat smarter opponent, but our systems get better and better and better. And so we actually prevent the billion dollar fraud because of the systems put in place that in response to the $10,000 frauds, you know? I mean, I think Coleman's putting his finger on an important point here, which is how much do we get to iterate? And Eliezer is saying the minute we have a super intelligent system, we won't be able to iterate because it's all over immediately. Well, there isn't a minute like that. The, The way that the continuum goes to the threshold is that you eventually get something that's smart enough that it knows not to play its hand early. And then if that thing, you, you know, if, if you are still cranking up the power on that and preserving its utility function, it knows it just has to wait to be smarter, to be able to win. It doesn't play its hand prematurely. It doesn't tip you off. It's not in its interest to do that. It's in its interest to cooperate until it thinks it can win against humanity and only then make its move. If it doesn't expect the future smarter AIs to be smarter than itself, then we might perhaps see these early AIs telling humanity, don't build the later AIs. And I I would be sort of surprised and amused if we ran if we ended up in that particular sort of like science fiction scenario as as I see it but we're already in like something that you know me from 10 years ago would have called a science fiction scenario which is the things that'll talk to you without being very smart I always come up Eliezer against this idea that you're assuming that the very bright machines the super intelligent machines will be malicious and duplicitous and so forth. And I just don't see that as a logical entailment of being very smart. I, I mean, they, they don't specifically want as an end in itself for you to be destroyed. They're, they're just doing whatever obtains the most of the stuff that they actually want, which doesn't specifically have a term that's maximized by humanity surviving and doing well. But why can't you um, just hard code um, you know, don't do anything that will annihilate the human species. Don't do anything. We don't know how. We don't know how. There, there is no technology to hard to code my, such my... So there, I agree with you, but oh, I think it's important if I can just run for one second. Um, I agree that right now we don't have the technology to hard code, um, don't do harm to humans. But for me, it's all boils down to a question of, are we going to get to the smart machines before we make progress on that hard coding problem or not? And that, to me, that means that problem of hard coding ethical values is actually one of the most important projects that we should be working on. Yeah. Yeah. And I tried to work on it 20 years in advance and capabilities are just like running vastly ahead of alignment. When I started working on this 20 years, you know, like two decades ago, we were in a sense ahead of where we are now. AlphaGo is is much more controllable than GPT-4. So there I agree with you. We, we've fallen in love with a technology that is fairly poorly controlled. AlphaGo is very easily controlled. 
Um, very well specified. We know what it does. We can more or less interpret why it's doing it. And everybody's in love with these large language models and they're <coughs> much less controlled. And you're right, we haven't made a lot of progress on alignment. So if we just go on a straight line, everybody dies. I think that's this is an important fact. I, I, think I would this almost is even accept that for argument, but but ask then, you know, just for the sake of argument, but then ask, do we have to be on a straight line? I mean, I would agree to the weaker claim that, you know, uh, we should certainly be extremely worried about the intentions of a super intelligence in the same way that, say, chimpanzees should be worried about the intentions of, you know, the first humans uh, that arise. Right. And 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 in fact, you know, chimpanzees, you know, continue to exist uh, uh, in our world only at humans pleasure. But I think that there are a lot of other considerations here. For example, if we imagined, uh, you know, that GPT. 10 is, you know, the first unaligned uh, uh, super intelligence uh, that uh, has these sorts of goals. Well, then, you know, it would be appearing in a world where presumably GPT-9, you know, already has very wide diffusion and where uh, people can use that to try to, you know, uh, you know, and, and, and GPT-9 was not destroying the world, uh, you know, by, by assumption. Why does GPT-9 work with the humans instead of with GPT-10? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe it does work with GPT-10, but you know, I just, I just don't view that as a certainty. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think you know your 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 certainty about this is the one place where I really get off the train. Same, same with me. I well, I mean, I'm not asking you to share my certainty. Uh, I am asking the the viewers to believe that you might end up with like more extreme probabilities after after you stare at things for an additional two, couple of decades. That doesn't mean you have to accept my probabilities immediately, but I'm at least asking you to like not treat that as some kind of weird anomaly. You're, you're just going to find those kinds of situations in these debates. My view is that I don't find the extreme probabilities that you described to be plausible, but I find the question that you're raising to be important. I think, you know, maybe straight line is too extreme, but the, this idea that if you just follow current trends, we're getting more, I'm sorry, we're getting less and less controllable machines and not getting more alignment. We have machines that are more unpredictable, harder to interpret, and no better at sticking to even a basic principle like be honest and don't make stuff up. Um, in fact, that's a problem that other technologies don't really have. Um, routing systems, GPS systems don't make stuff up. Uh, Google search doesn't make stuff up. It will point to things that other people have made stuff up, but it doesn't itself do it. So in that sense, like the trend line is not great. I agree with that. And I agree um, that we should be really worried about that and we should put effort into it. Even if I don't agree, you know, with the probabilities that you attach to it. I mean, um, Eliezer, let me interject with a question you, here. If, go ahead, Scott. Go ahead, Scott. Then oh, I'll, then no, I'll I mean, I think that Eliezer, you know, deserves sort of eternal credit for, you know, raising these issues uh, 20 years ago when it was, you know, very, very far from obvious to most of us that they would be live issues. I mean, I can say for my part, you know, I was familiar with uh, uh, Eliezer's views since, you know, 2006 or so. Uh, uh, and when I first encountered them, you know, I, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I knew that there was no principle that this scenario was impossible. But I just felt like, well, supposing I agreed with that, uh, what do you want me to do about it? You know, what? where is the research program that has any hope of making progress here, right? I mean, there's, you know, one question of what are the most important problems in the world, but in science, that's necessary, but not sufficient. We need something that we can make progress on. And, um, 
you know that that is the thing that I I, I think has has changed uh, uh, just recently. You know, with the advent of of actual very powerful AIs, and so the the sort of irony here is that you know as Eliezer has gotten you know much more pessimistic, you know, unfortunately in the last few years uh, about alignment. You know, I've sort of gotten more optimistic. Uh, I feel like, wow, there is a research program that we're, we're that, that we can actually make progress on now. Yeah, your research, your research program is going to take 100 years and we don't have well, I don't know. Years. I don't know how long it will take. Yeah, I mean, we don't know that. Yeah, exactly. We don't know. Um, I, I think the argument that we should put a lot more effort into it is clear. I think the argument that will take 100 years is totally unclear. I mean, I'm not even sure you can do it in 100 years because there's the basic problem of getting it right on the first try. And, and the way these things are supposed to work in science is that you have your bright-eyed, optimistic youngsters with their vastly oversimplified, hopelessly idealistic, optimistic plan. They charge ahead. They fail. They, they like learn a little cynicism. They learn a little pessimism. They learn it's not as easy as that. They try again. They fail again. They start to build up something over battle, uh, something like battle hardening. And then, and you know, like you know, they find out how little is possible to them. Eliezer, I mean, this is a place where I just really don't agree with you. So I think there's all kinds of things we can do that are sort of of the flavor of model organisms or simulations and so forth. And we just, I mean, it's hard because we don't actually have a super intelligence, so we can't fully calibrate. But it's a leap to say that there's nothing iterative that we can do here or that we have to get it right on the first time. I mean, I certainly see a scenario where that's true, where getting it right on the first time does make the, the difference. But I can see lots of scenarios where it doesn't where we do have time to iterate before it happens, after it happens. Um, and it's really not a single moment, but I'm, you know, idealizing. I mean, the, the, the problem is getting anything that generalizes up to the super intelligent level. We're past some threshold level. The, the minds may find it in their own interest to start lying to you. Even if that happens before superintelligence, I don't see the logical argument that you can't emulate that. Or study it. I mean, for example, you could, I'm just making this up as I go along, but for example, you could study what can we do with sociopaths who are often very bright and, you know, not tethered yeah, to well, our what, values, but, yeah, what, you know, you can what, what, what can a, what, what strategy can a, like, 70 IQ honest person come up with and invent themselves by which they will outwit and defeat a 130 IQ sociopath? All right, well, there you're like, not we, being fair either in the sense that, you know, we actually have lots of 150 IQ people who could be working on this problem collectively, and there's there's value in, in collective action. Well, there's literature. What, what, what I see is what what I see that gives me pause is that is that the people don't seem to appreciate what about the problem is hard, even at the level where like 20 years ago I could have told you it was hard. In, in, until, you know, somebody like me comes along and nags them about it. And then they talk about the ways in which they could adapt and be clever. But the, but the people charging straight forwards are, are just sort of like doing in this supremely naive way. So this let, me, let me share a historical work. example that I think about a lot, which is in the early 1900s, almost every scientist on the planet who thought about biology made a mistake. They all thought that genes were proteins. And then eventually Oswald Avery did the right experiments. So they realized... Um, the genes were not proteins. There was this weird acid. And it didn't take long after people got out of this stock mindset before they figured out how that weird acid worked and how to manipulate it and how to read the code that it was in and so forth. Um, so I absolutely sympathize with the fact that 
I feel like the field is stuck right now. I think the approaches people are taking to alignment are unlikely to work. I'm completely with you there. But I'm also, I guess, more long-term optimistic that science is self-correcting and that we have a chance here. Not a certainty, but I think if you know, we change research priorities from how do I make some money off this large language model that's unreliable to how do I save the species, we might actually make progress. There's a special kind of caution that you need when something needs to be gotten correct on the first try. I'd be very optimistic if people got a bunch of free retries and I didn't think the first one was going to kill, you know, the first really serious mistake killed everybody and we didn't get to try again. If we got free retries, it'd be an ordinary, you know, it'd be in in some sense an ordinary science problem. Look, I can imagine a world where we only got one try and if we failed, then then it, it destroys all life on Earth. And so let me agree to the conditional statement that if we are in that world, then I think that we're screwed. I will agree with the same conditional statement. All right. Yeah. And this, this gets um, back so, to, so, this goes so. back to like, you know, if, if you picture by analogy, the process of, you know, a human baby, which is extremely stupid, becoming a human adult and then just extending that so that in a single lifetime, this person goes from a baby to the smartest being that's ever lived but in the in the in the normal way that humans develop, which is you know, and it doesn't happen any on any one given day, and each sub skill develops a little bit as at, at its own rate, and so forth. It would not be at all obvious to me that our concerns that that we have to get it right vis a vis that individual the first time. I agree. No, well, pardon me. I do think we have to get them right the first time, but I think there's a decent chance of getting it right. It is very important to get it right the first time. If like. You have this one person getting smarter and smarter, and not everyone else is getting smarter and smarter. Eliezer, I mean, one thing that you've talked about recently is, you know, if we're all going to die, then at least let us die with dignity, right? So, you know, I mean, I mean, For a certain you know, technical some, definition some, some of people dignity, might care yes. about that more than others, but I would say that, uh, you know, w- w- one thing that death with dignity would mean is, uh, well, at least, you know, if there are, if we do get multiple retries and, you know, we get uh, uh, AIs that, let's say, try to take over the world, but are really inept at it and that fail and so forth at least let us succeed in that world, you know, and, and that's at least something that we can imagine working on and making progress on. I mean, you may very, it, it's, it, for, it is not presently ruled out that you have some like, you know, relatively smart in some ways, dumb in some other ways, or at least like not smarter than human in other ways, AI that makes an early shot at taking over the world, maybe because it expects future AIs to not share its goals and not cooperate with it. And it fails. And you know, I mean, the appropriate lesson to learn there is to, you know, like shut the whole thing down. But, uh, you know, if we so, yeah, like I would say, so I'd be, I'd be like, yeah, sure. Like, wouldn't it be good to live in that world? And the way you live in that world is that when you get that warning sign, you, sh- you, sh- you shut it all down. Here's a kind of thought experiment. GPT-4 is probably not capable of annihilating us all. I think we agree with that, um, about that. But um, GPT-4 is certainly capable of expressing the desire to annihilate us all or being, you know, people have rigged different versions that are, you know, more aggressive and, and so forth. We could say, look, until we can shut down those versions, you know, GPT-4s that are programmed to be malicious by human intent, maybe we shouldn't build GPT-5 or at least not GPT-6 or some other system, etc. We could say, you know, what we have have right now actually is part of that iteration. We have, you know, primitive intelligence right now. It's nowhere near as smart as a superintelligence is going to be. But even this one, we're not that good at constraining. Maybe we shouldn't pass go until we get this one right. 
I mean, the, the problem with that from my perspective is that I do think you, that you can pass this test and still wipe out humanity. Like, I think that there comes a point where your AI is smart enough that it knows which answer you're looking for. And the point at which it tells you what you want to hear is not the point at which right, it is well, internally look, my, my motivated. My test is not sufficient, but it might be a logical pause point, right? It, it might be that if we can't even pass the test now of you know controlling a deliberate uh, sort of fine-tuned to be malicious version of GPT-4, then we don't know what we're talking about and, and we're playing around with fire. So passing that test wouldn't be a guarantee that would be um, in, in good stead with an even smarter machine. But we really should be worried, I think, that we're not in a very good position with respect even to the current ones. Uh, Gary, I, of course, watched the uh, recent congressional hearing where uh, you and Sam Altman were uh, testifying, you know, about uh, what should be done should uh, should there be auditing of these systems you know before training before deployment and you know it may, maybe you know the most striking thing about about that session was you know just how little daylight there seemed to be between you and and Sam Altman the uh, CEO of OpenAI you know he was uh, completely on board uh, with the idea of you know establishing a regulatory framework uh, for uh, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, having to clear uh, the you know more powerful systems uh, before they are deployed. Now, you know, in, in Eliezer's worldview, that still would would be woefully insufficient, uh, uh, surely, and and you know we would still all be dead. But you know, maybe in in your in your worldview, uh, uh, that you know it, it it sounds like I'm not even sure how much daylight there is. I mean, the you know you know you know you know have the, a very I think historically striking situation where you know the the heads of all of the major AI or well almost all of the major AI organizations are are all you know agreeing uh, saying you know please regulate us yes this is dangerous yes we need to be regulated. I mean I thought it was really striking. In fact, I talked to Sam just before you know the the hearing started and. I had just proposed an international agency for AI. I wasn't the first person ever, but I, I pushed it in my TED Talk and an economist op-ed a few weeks before. And Sam <coughs> said to me, I like that idea. And I said, tell them, tell the Senate. And he did. And that kind of astonished me that he did. I mean, we have, you know, we've had some friction between the two of us in the past. And he actually even attributed to me. He said, I support what Professor Marcus said um, about doing international uh, governance. And there's been a lot of convergence around the world on that. Is that enough to stop Eliezer's worries? No, I don't think so. But it's an important baby step. I, I think that we do need to have some global body that can coordinate around these things. I don't think we really have to coordinate around superintelligence yet. But if we can't do any coordination now, then when the time comes, we're not prepared. Um, so I think it's great that there's some agreement. I I worry that, you know, OpenAI had this lobbying document that just came out that seemed not entirely <coughs> consistent with what Sam said in the room. And there's always concerns about regulatory capture and so forth. But I think it's great that a lot of the, the heads of these companies, maybe with the exception um, of Facebook or Meta, are recognizing that there are genuine concerns here. I mean, the other moment that a lot of people will remember from the testimony was when Sam was asked what he was most concerned about. Was it jobs? And he said, no. And I asked <coughs> Senator Blumenthal to push Sam and Sam was, you know, he could have been more candid, but he was fairly candid. And he said he was worried about serious harm to the species. I think that was an important moment when he said that to the Senate. And I think it galvanized a lot of people that he said it. So can we dwell on a moment? Um, I mean, we've been talking about the 
depending on your view, highly likely or tail risk scenario of humanity's extinction or, or significant destruction, it would appear to me by the same token, if if those are plausible scenarios we're talking about, then the opposite maybe we're talking about as well. You know, what does it look like to have a super intelligent AI that really, you know, as if as a feature of its intelligence, deeply understands human beings, the human species, and also has uh, a deep desire for us to be uh, as happy as possible. Oh, as happy as what possible. What does that world look like? And do you think yeah, that's yeah, that a, that looks like you know no, no, just not, like I mean, wire, maybe wire not as happy as physically possible to make but, them as happy as possible? But more like a parent wants their child to be happy, right? That may not involve any particular scenario, but is, is generally quite concerned about the well-being of the human race and is also super intelligent. Honestly, I'd rather have machines work on medical problems than happiness problems. I think there's maybe more risk of misspecification of the happiness problems. Whereas if we get them to work on Alzheimer's and just say like, figure out what's going on, why are these plaques there? What can you do about it? Maybe there's less harm that might come come from you don't need super intelligence for that that sounds like an alpha fold 3 problem or an alpha fold 4 problem well alpha fold doesn't really do that this is all somewhat I mean, this is somewhat different than the question i'm asking it's it's not really even um us asking a super intelligence to do anything cuz we we've already been entertaining scenarios where the super intelligence has its own desires independent of us is yeah, it, I'm not do, real do you think at all about I mean, a scenario where i mean i don't think we want to leave what their objective functions are, what their desires are to them working them out, you know, with no consultation from us, with no human in the loop, like fully, I mean, especially given our current understanding of the technology, like our current understanding of how to keep a system on track, doing what we want to do is pretty limited. And so, you know, taking humans out of the loop there, it sounds like a really bad idea to me, at least in the foreseeable future. I would want to see much better alignment technology. No, no I agree. I want to give free reign. Free reign. So if we had the textbook from the future, like we have the textbook from 100 years in the future, which contains all the simple ideas that actually work in real life, as opposed to, you know, the complicated ideas and the simple ideas that don't work in real life, the equivalent of relus instead of sigmoids for the activation functions, you know, 100 years, the textbook from 100 years in the future, you can probably build a super intelligence that'll want anything you can, anything that's coherent to want, anything you can, you know, figure out how to say, describe, coherently pointed at your own mind and tell you to figure out what what it is you meant for to want and you know you could get the you could get the glorious transhumanist future you could get the happily ever after anything's you know anything's possible that doesn't violate the laws of physics um the, the trouble is doing it in real life and you know on the first try but uh yeah so like you know could could the 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 whole thing that we're we're aiming for here is to colonize all the galaxies we can reach before somebody else gets them first and turn them into galaxies full of, you know, complex sapient life living happily ever after, you know, that that's, that's the goal. That's still the goal. Even if we, you know, even, even, even when I call for like, you know, a permanent moratorium on AI, I'm not trying to prevent us from from colonizing the galaxies, you know, like humanity forbid more, more like let's, you know, let's like do some human intelligence augmentation with alpha fold four. And before we try, building GPT-8.
Uh, one of the few scenarios that I think we can clearly rule out here is an AI that is existentially dangerous, but also boring. Right. I mean, I think anything that has the capacity to kill us all, right, would have, you know, uh, if if nothing else, pretty amazing capabilities. And those capabilities, you know, could also be turned to, you know, uh, solving a lot of humanity's problems, right? You know, if 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 we were to solve the alignment problem, I mean, you know, humanity had a lot of existential, you know, risks, you know, before AI came on the scene, right? Uh, uh, you know, I mean, there was the risk of of a you know, nuclear annihilation. There is the risk of runaway climate change. And, you know, I would I would love to see, you know, an AI that could help us with such things. I would also love to see an AI that could sort of you know, help us just solve, you know, some of the mysteries of the universe. I mean, you know, like how can one possibly not be curious to know, you know, what what such a being could teach us? Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, for the past year, I've tried to use GPT-4 to produce original scientific insights, and uh, I've not been able to get it to do that. Uh, and, you know, I don't know whether I should feel, you know, disappointed or relieved by that. But I think, you know, the better part of me should, you know, just should is the part that should just want to see, you know, the great mysteries of uh, uh, of existence of, you know, why is the universe quantum mechanical or, you know, uh, how do you prove the Riemann hypothesis? It should just want to see these mysteries solved, you know, and, and uh, if it's to be by AI, then then uh, then then fine. Let, Let me give you a kind AI. of lesson in epistemic humility. We don't really know whether GPT-4 is net positive or net negative. You know, there are lots of arguments you can make. I've been in a bunch of debates where I've, you know, had to take the side of arguing that the, that it's a net negative, but we don't really know. If we don't know I that for GPT-4... I mean, I mean, was the invention of agriculture net positive or negative? I mean, negative? I'd say it was net positive. I mean, you, but, could, you could go back way further. The point is, if I can just finish the, the quick, like, thought experiment or whatever... I don't think anybody can reasonably answer that, right? We we don't yet know all of the ways in which GPT-4 will be used for good. We don't know all of the ways in which bad actors will use it. We don't know all the consequences. Um, that's going to be true for each iteration. It's probably going to get harder to compute um, for each iteration, and we can't even do it now. And I think that we should realize that, to realize our own limits um, in being able to assess the, the negatives and positives. Maybe the, we can think about be better ways to do that than we currently have. But it, I, it, I think you've got to have a guess. Like, like my guess is that so far, not looking into the future at all, GPT-4 has been net positive. I mean, maybe. I mean, we haven't talked about the, the, the various risks yet, and it's still early. But I mean, that's just a guess is kind of the point. Like we don't have a way of putting it on a spreadsheet right now or, or whatever. Like we, we don't really have a good way to quantify it. But it's not out of control but yet. I mean, so, so by and large, people are going to be using GPT-4 to use things to do things that they want. And the relative cases where they manage to injure themselves are rare enough to be news on Twitter. Well, for example, um, I mean, we haven't talked about it, but, you know, what bad actors, some bad actors will want to do is to influence um, the U.S. elections and try to undermine democracy in the U.S. And if they succeed in that, I think there's pretty serious long-term consequences there. Well, I think it's OpenAI's responsibility to step up and run the 2024 election itself. <laughs> I will. I, I can pass that along. Is, is that is that uh, a joke? But no, I mean, <laughs> okay, I mean, I mean, as far it. as I can see, you know, the the clearest concrete harm to have come from GPT 
so far is that you know tens of millions of students have now used it to cheat on their assignments. And I have been thinking about that, and I have been trying to come up with solutions I, I to that. Uh, at the same time, you know, the positive utility has included. I mean, you know, I uh, I'm a theoretical computer scientist, which means you know one who hasn't uh, written any serious code for about 20 years, and uh, I you know realized just a month or two ago I can get back into coding, and the way I can do it is I just ask GPT to write the code for me, and you know uh, I I wasn't expecting it to work that well, and unbelievably it you know often just does exactly what I want on the first try. So I mean, you know, I you know I, I am getting utility from it uh, rather than just you know uh, seeing it as 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 an interesting uh, 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 research object and uh, uh, you know and 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 you know I, I can imagine that that hundreds of millions of people are going to be deriving utility from it in those ways. I mean, like most of the tools to help them derive that utility are not even out yet, but they're they're coming in the next couple of years. I mean, part of the reason why I'm worried about the focus focus on short-term problems is that I suspect that the short-term problems might very well be solvable and we will be left with the long-term problems after that. Maybe we can solve the, like it wouldn't surprise me very much if like in 2025, the, um, well, you know, the, uh, like the large language, there are large language models that just don't make stuff up anymore. And, and, and yet, and yet, you know, and yet the superintelligence still kills everyone because they weren't the same problem. Well, you know, you know, we just need to figure out how to uh, delay the uh, apocalypse by at least one year per year of research invested. What what does that delay look like if it's not just a moratorium? Well, I, I don't know. That's why it's research. Okay, so but but possibly one ought to say to the politicians and the public. And by the way, if we had a superintelligence tomorrow, our research wouldn't be finished and everybody would drop dead. You know, it's kind of ironic. The biggest argument against the pause letter was that if we slow down for six months, then China will get ahead of us and get GPT-5 before we will. But there's probably always a counter argument of maybe roughly equal strength, which is if we move six months faster on this technology, which is not really solving the alignment problem, then we're reducing our room to get this solved in time by six months. I mean, I don't think you're going to solve the alignment problem in time. I think that six months of delay on alignment while a bad thing in an absolute sense is, you know, like, you know, you weren't going to solve it with given an extra six months. I mean, your whole argument rests on timing, right? That, that we will get to this point and we won't be able to move fast enough at that point. And so, you know, a lot <coughs> depends on what preparation we can do. You know, I'm, I'm often known as a pessimist, but I'm a little bit more optimistic than you are. Not entirely optimistic, but a little bit more optimistic than you are that we could make progress on the alignment problem if we prioritized it. And we can absolutely it make progress. Ways. We can absolutely make progress. You know, there's, there's always the, you know, that, that wonderful sense of accomplishment is piece by piece you decode, you know, like one more little fact about LLMs. You never get to the point where you understand it as well as we understood the interior of a chess playing program in 1997. Yeah, you, you I mean, I think we should stop spending all this time on LLMs. I, I don't think the answer to alignment is going to come from L, through LLMs. I really don't. I think they're, they're too much of a black box. You can't put explicit symbolic uh, constraints in the way that you need to. I, I think they're actually, with respect to alignment, a blind alley. I think with respect to writing code, they're a great tool. But with alignment, I don't think the answer is there. Maybe we should be telling these things to... Hold on. At the risk of asking a stupid question, every time GPT asks me if that answer was helpful, 
and then does the same thing with thousands or hundreds of thousands of other people and and uh, changes as a result. Is that not a decentralized way of making it more aligned? Yeah, well, I mean, even before, maybe I should explain this. How about Scott? We haven't, I haven't heard from Scott in a second, so go ahead. So there is that upvoting and downvoting, you know, that, that gets uh, fed back in into sort of fine-tuning it. But even before that, uh, there was, you know, a major step, you know, in going from, let's say, the, the base GPT-3 model, for example, to the chat GPT, you know, that was released to the public. And that was called uh, RLHF, Reinforcement Learning with Human Feedback. And what that basically involved was, you know, uh, several hundred uh, contractors, you know, looking at just just ten, tens of thousands of examples of, of outputs and, uh, and, and rating them, you know, are they helpful? Uh, are they offensive? Are, are they, you know, uh, giving dangerous medical advice uh, or, or uh, uh, you know, bomb making instructions, you know, or, or uh, uh, racist invective or, you know, various other categories that, that, that we don't want. And, and that, that was then used to fine tune the model. So when, um, you know, uh, um, um, Gary talked before about how GPT is amoral, uh, you know, I think that that has to be qualified by saying that, you know, these, this reinforcement learning is at least giving it, you know, a, a semblance of morality, right? It is causing it to sort of be, behave, you know, in various contexts as if it had, you know, a certain morality. Uh, I mean, when you phrase it that way, I'm okay with it. The problem is, that, you know, everything rests and on the I, I would say it, it, is, it is very much an open question, you know, how much that, you know, to what extent does that generalize? You know, Eliezer treats it as obvious that, you know, uh, once you have a powerful enough AI, you know, this is just a fig leaf. It, you know, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it will just learn. It's you know, pretty fig leafy. I'm, I'm with Eliezer there. Okay. It, it's fig leaves. Well, uh, I, I, I would say that, you know, the uh, sort of how well, you know, or, or, or under what circumstances does a machine learning model sort of uh, generalize in the way we want outside of its training distribution, you know, is one of the great open problems in machine learning. It is one of the great open problems, and we should be working on it more than on, on some others. Um, I'm um, working on it now. <laughs> I've been sold on that. I, I want to be clear about the experimental predictions of my theory. Uh, unfortunately, I have never claimed that you cannot get a semblance of morality. You can get the, the question of like, what causes the human to press thumbs up, thumbs down is a strictly factual question. Anything smart enough that's exposed to some, you know, bounded amount of data that needs to figure it out can figure that out. The, whether it cares, whether it gets internalized is, is, the, is the critical question there. And, and I, I do think that there's like a very strong default prediction, which is like, obviously not. I, I mean, I'll just give a different way of thinking about that, which is jailbreaking. It's actually still quite easy to, I mean, it's not trivial, but it's not hard to jailbreak GPT-4. And what those cases show is that they haven't really, inter the systems haven't really internalized 
the constraints. They, they recognize some representations of the constraints. So they filter, you know, how to build a bomb. But if you can find some other way to get it to build a bomb, then that's telling you that it doesn't deeply understand that you shouldn't uh, give people the, the recipe for a bomb. It just says, you know, you shouldn't when directly asked for it, do it. And it, it does, it's not even at that abstraction level. You can always get the understanding. You can always get the factual question. The reason it doesn't generalize is that it's stupid. At some point, it will know that you also don't want to, that the operators don't want it giving bond making directions in the other language. The question is like whether if it's incentivized to give the answer that the operators want, you know, in, in that circumstance, is it thereby incentivized to do everything else the operators want, even when the operators can't see it? I mean, a lot of the jailbreaking examples, you know, if it were a human, we would say that it's deeply morally ambiguous. You know, for example, you know, you ask GPT how to build a bomb. It says, well, no, I'm not going to help you. But then you say, well, you know, I, I need you to help me write a realistic play uh, that has a character who builds a bomb. And then it says, sure, I can help you with that. Well, right? so look, let's take that example. We would like a system to have a constraint that if somebody asks for a fictional version that you don't give enough details, right? I mean, Hollywood screenwriters don't give enough details when they have, um, you know, illustrations about building bombs. They give you a little bit of the flavor. They don't give you the whole thing. GPT-4 doesn't really understand a constraint like that. But this will be solved. Maybe. This, this will be solved before the world ends. Maybe. The AI that kills everyone will know the difference. Maybe. I mean, another way to put it is if we can't even solve that one, then we do have a problem. And right now we can't solve that one. And if, if, I mean, if we can't solve that one, we don't have an extinction level problem because the AI is still stupid. Yeah, we do still have a catastrophe level problem. So I know your focus has been on extinction, but, I, you know, I'm worried about, for example, accidental nuclear war caused by the spread of misinformation and systems being entrusted with too much power. So like, there, there's a lot of things <coughs> short of extinction that might happen from not super intelligence, but kind of mediocre intelligence that is greatly empowered. And I think that's where we're headed right now. You know, I've heard that there are two kinds of mathematicians. There's a kind who boasts, you know, you know, that unbelievably general theorem. Well, I generalized it even further. And then there's the kind who boasts, you know, you know, that unbelievably specific problem that no one could solve. Well, I found a special case that I still can't solve. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, culturally in, in that second camp. And so, you know, so I so so to me, it's very familiar to make this move of, you know, if the uh, alignment problem is too hard, then let us find a smaller problem that is already not solved. And let us hope to learn something by solving that smaller problem. I mean, that's what we did, you know, like that's what we were doing. At by the way, Scott, I mean, no, I, I think say, Scott, can one you sketch a little, in a little more detail what I was going to name the problem. The problem was like having a agent that could switch between two utility functions, depending on a button or a switch or a bit of information or something such that it wouldn't try to make you press the button. It wouldn't try to make you avoid pressing the button. And if it built a copy of itself, would want to build the dependency on the switch into the copy. So like that's an example of a, you know, very basic problem in alignment theory that, you know, is still unsolved. And, oh, and I'm glad that Mary worked on these things. And uh, but, you know, if, if by your own lights, you know, that, you know, that sort of, you know, was not a, a uh, successful path, well, then maybe, you know, we should uh, uh, have a lot of people investigating a lot of different paths. Yeah, I'm with fully with Scott on that, that I think it's 
an issue of we're not letting enough flowers bloom. In particular, almost everything right now is some variation on an LLM. And I don't think that that's a broad enough take on the problem. The question is like, yeah. If I if I, if I can just jump in here, I want to I want to hold on hold on, Eliezer. I I just want people to have a little bit of a more specific picture of what Scott uh, your your picture of sort of AI research is on a typical day. Because if I think of another you know p- potentially catastrophic risk like climate change, I can picture what a what a you know a worried climate scientist might be doing. They might be creating a model you know, a more accurate model of climate change so that, so that we know how much we have to cut emissions by. They might be, you know, modeling how solar power as opposed to wind power could change that model and, and so forth so as to influence public policy. What does an AI safety researcher like yourself who's working on the quote-unquote smaller problems do specifically like on a given day? So uh, I'm a relative newcomer uh, to this area. You know, I've not been working on it for 20 years uh, like uh, Eliezer has. Uh, You know, I have uh, I uh, accepted uh, an offer from OpenAI uh, a year ago to uh, work with them for uh, um, um, two years now to uh, sort of uh, uh, think about these questions. And uh, so so, you know, one of one of the main things that that I've thought about, just to start with that, is uh, how do we make uh, the output of an AI uh, identifiable as such? You know, how can we insert a watermark, you know, into uh, meaning a, stati- a secret statistical signal into the outputs of GPT that will let, you know, uh, GPT generated text be identifiable as such? And I think that we've actually made, you know, major advances on that problem over the last year. You know, we don't have a solution that is robust against any kind of attack. Uh, but, you know, we have something that, that might actually be uh, deployed in, in some near future. Now, there are lots and lots of other directions that pe- people think about. Uh, one of them is interpretability, which means, uh, you know, can you do effectively neuroscience on a uh, on a neural network? Can you look inside of it, you know, open the black box and understand what's going on inside? Uh, there was some amazing work um, over, uh, a year ago by uh, the group of Jacob Steinhardt at Berkeley, where they effectively showed how to apply a lie detector test to a language model. So, you know, you can train a language model to tell lies by giving it lots of examples, you know, two plus two is five, uh, the sky is orange and so forth. Uh, But then you can uh, find uh, in some internal layer of the network where it has a representation of what was was the truth of the matter, or at least what was regarded as true in the training data. Okay, that truth then gets overridden by the output layer in the network because it was trained to lie. Okay, but you know you could imagine uh, uh, trying to deal with the you know the deceptive alignment scenario that Eliezer is worried about by you know using these sorts of techniques by sort of looking inside of the network. I, I predict in advance that if you get this good enough, it goes off. It tells you that the sufficiently smart AI is planning to kill you. If it's not so smart that it can you know know figure out where the lie detector is and route its thoughts around it. But if you like try it on an AI that's not quite that intelligent and reflective, the lie detector goes off. Now what? Well, uh, then you have a warning bell. You know, tell you know, and I think, cool. I think what do you do after one, one of the mo- do one of the most important things that we need are sort of legible warning bells 
right? And and that that actually leads to a third category, uh, which, for example, the uh, ARC, the Alignment Research Center, uh, which is uh, run by my my former student uh, Paul Cristiano, uh, has been a, a leader in in sort of doing dangerous capability evaluations. So you know they uh, 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 before GPT four was released, you know they did a bunch of evaluations of you know could GPT four make copies of itself? Uh, could it figure out how to deceive people? Could it figure out how to make money, uh, you know, uh, open up its own could bank? It, could account? it hire a task rabbit? Uh, yes. And yes. Yeah, so, so the most notable success that they had was that it could figure out how to hire a task rabbit to help it, you know, pass a captcha. And then it could figure out, you know, when the person asked, uh, well, you know, why do you need me to help you with this? It's a, a when the person asked, are you a robot? Lol. <laughs> yes. It said, well, no, no I, I am visually impaired. Uh, now, you know, it was not able to sort of make copies of itself or to sort of hack into systems. You know, there, there is a lot of work right now with, uh, the, you know, this thing called auto GPT, right? People are trying to, you know, you could think it's almost like gain of function research, right? You might be a little bit worried about it, but people are trying to sort of, you know, unleash G GPT, give it access to the internet, you know, tell it to sort of, you know, make copies of itself, you know, wreak havoc, acquire power and see what happens. So far, uh, 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 you know, it seems pretty ineffective at those things. But, you know, I, I expect that to change. Right. And but 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 but, you know, the, the, uh, the point is that I think it's very important to have, you know, in advance of training the models, releasing the models to have this suite of evaluations and to sort of have decided in advance what kind of abilities, if we see them, will set off a warning bell where now everyone can legibly agree, like, yes, this is too dangerous to release. Okay, and then do we actually have the planetary capacity to be like, okay, that AI started thinking about how to kill everyone, shut down all AI research past this point? Well, I don't know, but I think there's a much better chance that we have that capacity if you can point to the results of a clear experiment like that. I. I mean, to me, it seems pretty predictable what evidence we're going to get later. Well, but, okay. Uh, I, mean, I mean, things you know. <laughs> that are obvious to you are not obvious to most people. And so, you know, even if even if I agreed that it was obvious, there would still be the problem of how do you make that obvious to the rest of the world? I, I mean, you can, you know, you know they, there are already like little toy models showing that the very straightforward prediction of a robot tries to resist being shut down if it like does long term planning. Like th that's already been shown. right, but then people will say, "But those are just toy models, right?" You know, if you see that in there's, GPT a, there's a lot of assumptions made in all of these things, and you know, I I think we're still looking at a very limited piece of hypothesis space about <clears throat> what the models will be, about um, what kinds of constraints we can build into those models. You know, one way to look at it would be. The things that we have done have not worked, and therefore we should look outside the space of what we're doing. And I feel like it's a little bit like the old joke about the drunk going around in circles looking for the keys, and the police officer says, why? And they say, well, that's where the streetlight is. I, I think that you know we're looking under the same four or five streetlights that haven't worked, and, and we need to build other ones. There's no logical There's no logical argument that says we couldn't erect other streetlights. I think there's a lack of will and, and too much obsession with the LLMs, and that's keeping us from doing so, it. So, so even in the world where I'm right and things – you know, proceed, 
either rapidly or in a thresholded way where you don't get unlimited free retries, you know, it, that can be because the, 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 the capability gains go too fast. It can be because past a certain point, all of your AIs bide their time until they get strong enough so you don't get any data, any, any like true data on what they're thinking. It could be because, you know, well, like that's the, an argument, the for example, to work really hard on transparency and to maybe not accept technologies that are not transparent. OK, so like the transparent, so like the lie detector goes off and everybody's like, oh, well, we still have to build our AIs, even though they're lying to us sometimes, because otherwise China will get ahead. I mean, so there you talk about something we've talked about way too little, which is the political and social side of this. So, you know, part of what has really motivated me in the last several months is, is worry about exactly that. So. You know, there's there's what's logically possible and what's politically possible. And I am really concerned that the politics of let's not lose out to China is going to keep us from doing the right thing in terms of building the right <coughs> moral systems, looking at the right range of problems and so forth. So, you know, it is entirely possible that we will screw ourselves. If I, if I can just like finish my point there before handing it to you indeed. But like the point I was trying to say there is that even in worlds that look very, very bad from that perspective, where humanity is quite doomed, it will still be true that you can make progress in research. You can't make enough progress in research fast enough in those worlds, but you can still make progress on transparency. You can make progress on watermarking. So there's, there's not, we, we can't just say like, it's possible to make progress. There has to be, the question is not, is it possible to make any progress? The question is, is it possible to make enough progress fast enough? And that's what the question has to be. I agree so with you can that. Always yeah. There's another question of what would you have us do? Would you have us not try to make that progress? I'd have you try to make that progress on GPT-4 level systems and then not go past GPT-4 level systems because we don't actually understand the, 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 the gain function for you know, how, cap how fast capabilities increase as you go past GPT-4. Personally, don't think that GPT- All right, so I mean, we, we've, we've only got- Go ahead, Gary, uh, just go briefly, ahead. I personally don't think that GPT-5 is going to be qualitatively different from GPT-4 in the relevant ways to what Eliezer is talking about. But I do think, you know, some qualitative changes could <coughs> be relevant to what he's talking about. We have no clue what they are. And so it is a little bit dodgy to just proceed blindly saying, do whatever you want. We don't really have a theory and let's hope for the best. You know, Eliezer's I, clearest... I would mostly guess that GPT-5 doesn't end the world, but I don't actually know. Yeah, we don't actually know. And I, I was going to say, the thing that Eliezer has said lately that has most resonated with me is we don't have a plan. We really don't. Like, I think I put the probability distributions in a much more optimistic way, I think, than Eliezer would. But I completely agree. We don't have a full plan on these things or even close to a full plan. And we should be worried and we should be working on this. Okay, Scott, I'm going to give you the last word before uh, before we come up on our stop time here. Gosh, uh, that's a that's a that's unless a you unless you said all there is to be said. <laughs> um, Cheer us up, Scott. Come on. I mean, Maybe enough has yeah. been said. Uh, so, so I think that that uh, uh, you know we've we've argued about a bunch of things, but you know, uh, someone listening might notice that actually all three of us, despite having very different perspectives, uh, agree about you know the uh, the great uh, importance of of you know working on AI alignment. I think uh, uh, you know that was uh, uh, you know maybe uh, 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 obvious to some people, including Eliezer for a long time. It was not obvious to most of the world. I think that, you know, the, the success 
of, of large language models, you know, which uh, most of us did not predict, uh, uh, you know, maybe even uh, uh, could not have predicted uh, from any principles that we knew. But now that we've seen it, uh, the least we can do is to update on that on that uh, empirical fact and and realize that uh, you know we 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 now are in some sense in a different world we are in a world that you know to a great extent you know will be defined by you know the capabilities and limitations of AI uh, going forward and um, you know I don't regard it as obvious that that's a, a a world where where we are all doomed where where we all die but you know I also don't uh, dismiss that possibility I think that uh, you know there there is an enormous uh, uh, unbelievably enormous error bars uh, on 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 where we could be going and you know like the one thing you know that that, that, that uh, a scientist is sort of always uh, always feels confident in in saying about the future is that more research is needed <laughs> but you know I think that that's especially the case here I mean you know we need uh, more knowledge about you know what are the, the contours of the uh, alignment problem. And, you know, uh, of course, uh, Eliezer and, you know, Miri, you know, his, his organization uh, were trying to develop that knowledge for 20 years, you know, and they showed a lot of foresight in um, trying to do that. But, you know, they were up against, you know, an enormous headwind that, you know, they were sort of trying to do it in the absence of, you know, either, you know, clear empirical data, you know, about powerful AIs or a mathematical theory, right? And it's really, really hard to do science when you have neither of those two things. And now at least we have, you know, the powerful AIs in the world and we can get experience from them. You know, we still don't have a mathematical theory that really deeply explains what they're doing, but at least we can get data. And so now I am much more optimistic than I would have been, you know, a decade ago, let's say, that one can make actual progress on, on, on the AI alignment problem. You know, of course, you know, there is a question of timing, as, uh, as was uh, uh, discussed um, many times. The question is, you know, will the alignment research happen fast enough to keep up with the capabilities research? Uh, but, you know, I don't, I don't regard it as a lost cause. You know, it's, uh, at least it's not obvious that it won't. So, you know, in any case, let's get started or let's, let's, uh, or let's, let's continue. Let's, let's, let's try to do the research and let's get more people working on that. I think that that, that, that is now uh, a slam dunk, you know, just a completely clear uh, case to make to, you know, academics, to policymakers, to, to anyone who's interested. And, you know, I've been gratified that, that you know, uh, you know, Eliezer was sort of a voice in the wilderness for, for a long time talking about the importance of AI safety. That is no longer the case. Uh, you now have, you know, you know, I mean, almost all of my friends in, you know, in just the academic computer science world, you know, when I see them, they mostly want to talk about AI alignment. I rarely agree with Scott when we trade emails. Okay, so um, I rarely agree with Scott when we trade emails. We seem to always disagree, but I completely concur with the summary that he just gave all four or five minutes of it. <laughs> I, 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 think you. I, I mean, I mean, there is a selection of so, Gary, right? We focus. I, I think on the two Gary. decades gave me a sense of a roadmap, and it gave me a sense that we're falling enormously behind in the roadmap and need to back off. Is is the way I w- is what I would say to all that. If there is a smart, talented. 18 year old kid listening, listening to this podcast who wants to get into this issue. What is your 10 second concrete advice to that person? Mine is study neurosymbolic AI and see if there's a way there 
to represent values explicitly that might help us? Uh, learn all you can about computer science and math and related subjects and uh, think outside the box and uh, wow everyone with a new idea. Get security mindset, figure out what's going to go wrong, figure out the flaws in your arguments for what's going to go wrong. Try to get ahead of the curve. Don't, don't wait for reality to hit you over the head with things. Uh, this, this is very difficult. Uh, the people in evolutionary biology happen to have a bunch of knowledge about how to do it based on the history of their own field. But uh, and the security mindset people in computer security, but it's, it's quite hard. I'll drink to all of that. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks to all three of you for this. Uh, this was a great conversation and I hope uh, people got something out of it. So with that said, we're wrapped up. Thanks so much. Thanks for convening this. It was fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.